Welcome to Market Scales, The Trust Revolution, How Trust Unlocks the Future. Hosted by the CEO of White Fox Defense, a global leader in drone airspace security, here's technology entrepreneur, Luke Fox. Hello, and thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to explore what trust means to militaries, spies, autonomous cars, drones, and fighter jets. Joining me for this wide and exciting topic is retired Major General Jim Poss, who's a 30-year U.S. Air Force veteran with combat experience in four wars and was the Air Force's senior career intelligence officer. During his service, he helped stand up the U.S. Cyber Command and spent time at the National Security Agency, also known as the NSA. He is now CEO of ISR Ideas, an intelligence and drone consulting firm. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Luke. And I really appreciate the offer to uh, come and talk and talk about something that uh, really a lot of folks don't talk about, which is uh, trust in the modern world. And that's got a lot of different connotations that mean a lot to uh, the everyday welfare of everybody here in the 21st century. Yeah. And when we think about trust, so much of it is, you know, do we trust our friends, our spouse, like individual spouse to one another? And yet we're talking about these big, hairy topics such as that we're going to be diving into, such as how do militaries trust each other? Right. Like you have this experience working with all these different agencies and groups around the world. I'm curious just to dive into things like when we talk about big militaries from different countries trusting one another, the spies and the intelligence community. Can you just share a little bit about how that's approached? Is it trust but verifies that, you know, you don't nobody really trusts each other? Like how, do, how does that work? Okay. So you're talking about 19th century <laughs> trust. That's uh now you can tell a person whether you can trust them and no computers involved. Uh, yeah. Well, I, you know, I tell you what, um, trust is transient and uh, trust has to be earned, which I'm pretty sure your your dad taught you when you were growing up. I know mine did. And and that's kind of the attitude that we take with it. Um, you know, I don't want to get too historical, but the, you know, seminal moment in uh, the American military reaching out to other militaries was when we finally got past... Uh, the fact that uh, King George III was no longer in charge in the United Kingdom and uh, really set up an alliance with the UK and uh, the other Commonwealth nations in World War II, um, that we started really a trust revolution that's still continuing in the, in the American military and, and actually in the, uh, the Commonwealth militaries as well. Uh, that was the first time that we uh, you know, fundamentally revealed everything you know, to an ally um, there, there's a great book on it uh, called Masters, uh, Masters and Commanders, which uh, which goes into the interaction between the British and American staffs in World War II. And uh, it's just uh, amazing uh, to see the level of interaction uh, that they had. And it's continued to this day. Um, NATO being a, a prime example of an organization that uh, I'm going to argue its fundamental purpose is to maintain trust between uh, the Western militaries. Um Yes, it is a military organization. It does do military planning, but um, what it really does is uh, make sure that uh, all of the nations that are part of the North uh, North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization really trust and know that the rest of them are going to show up in, in any given situation. And in NATO's great credit, <laughs> the first and so far, praise the Lord, only time they've uh, invoked the uh, self-protection clause, which is an attack on one, is an attack on all, was done on behalf of the United States after uh, the 9-11 attacks. Uh, trust in the intel community is a little different. Um, you know, it varies by uh, intel agency, uh, you know, the National Security Agency and um, British uh, government communication headquarters and the various other agencies, particularly in the Commonwealth, um, really trust each other and uh, at operate at a fundamental level. Uh, CIA and uh, its equivalents around the world, not so much. Um, but it's, it's again, it's something that that takes time and and real trust is something that's that's cultural. And of course, just like your dad taught you, real trust is is earned. Hmm. And part of that earning is opportunities to prove it and then some sort of knowledge of repercussions if it's even slightly breached. I'm curious, you mentioned NATO. How does NATO uphold that trust? How do they ensure that if there is a 
suspected breach that it's addressed? Um, yeah, we've dealt with uh, quite a few of them, um, you know, here in the past. Um, well, well, we'll pick on the uh, the Snowden um, problems with Edward uh, Snowden, who I am convinced, and there's quite a bit of evidence for it, was a foreign agent that was working inside NSA networks. And as I kind of mentioned, uh, NSA is one of those intelligence agencies that, that really trusts. Um, and he ended up uh, exposing, you know, a, a tr- tremendous amount of uh, secrets that um, were not just U.S., but um, were also associated with the Commonwealth nations and some of our, our key treaty partners in NATO. And um, I, I think we got around that. I hope we got around that by being um, open with our partners, you know, told them exactly what data we thought was breached from their side, um, started to work together uh, to figure out how we were going to stop this from happening ever again in the future. Uh, a lot of that dealt with internal auditing and methods to uh, verify need to know. Uh, it, it also set up with, um, it, it also ended up with the standards that are, um, you know, agreed to by the nations that, that really have to interact closely on um, on what verification and need to know was what internal auditing was and and I think really um, improved on the um, psychological trust that we had and added a, a layer of uh, cyber trust that we haven't had it hated that um, we had to uh, get to it that way but um, it, I, I think it really did make it ended up making trust stronger and the alliance stronger at the end of it Wow so much to unpack there so you you mentioned Snowden and so many the, the I think he's very widely uh, fame uh, famous for people would say that he's like this uh, vigilante, right? That's uh, that had a, the strong moral cause. You're saying that sure he did. <laughs> you're saying that there actually might have been something else going on, something nefarious and intentional to undercut the United States or to undercut all yeah, our allies. This Was is uh, this is this is my opinion. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, if we ever get the man back from Russia to uh, put him under trial, I think we'll find out that, uh, you know, his uh, self-styled uh, view as being a whistleblower was a cover story uh, for, for espionage that he engaged in against the United States and a lot of his close allies. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at the volume of the data that the man um, stole uh, from the U.S. government, in no way, shape or form, um, fits his cover story that he's a, a whistleblower. The man stole 1.7 million documents out, at, which has been confirmed by congressional testimony. Only a tiny percentage uh, covered the, uh, you know, the privacy concerns and other stuff that he touts to the rest of the world. And a lot of those covered some very, you know, deep secrets about how NSA operates, um, how the U.S. military operates. They got nothing to do with his, uh, um, his view is uh, self-styled and supported by the the Russian government uh, notion that he was uh, really just a whistleblower and what the uh, Western intelligence agencies were doing to uh, to their own citizens and others. Well, where do you think all of that information went? That all of the other outside <laughs> of privacy, you're saying like a huge portion of it wasn't about privacy. Where where did that go? Right, some portion of it got leaked publicly, and that you're saying created this cover of him being a whistleblower. Yeah. Um, so if you if you buy my story, and I would uh, hope that Mr. Snowden gets his day in court here in the U.S. to to counter uh, what I'm saying, uh, he had tremendous insider access um, for a long time. Um, he had first attempted to uh, defect to the Chinese. Chinese wouldn't have him. Uh, after a lot of consternation and quite a bit of a stay in the airport in Moscow, President Putin finally decided to have him. And, uh, uh, you know, as much as I know the Russians, you cut a deal with them like that, you're going to be under their control for forever. Um, and I, I believe that uh, this whole whistleblower thing uh, was an added bonus to the Russians that they could also go at um you know, how NSA and the, and the West uh, collects intelligence in addition to the treasure trove of information that he no doubtedly, uh, that he probably um, released to him. I mean, his story was he contained all that data on uh, laptops and they were password protected and encrypted. I, I don't, I'm, uh, I'm dubious of that story. So on that, 
I'm curious when we talk about uh, you, we talk about the idea of trust, and uh, many people talk about cyber trust, and we can talk a little more about that. But the weakest link in the chain is often said to be the humans. So how do you? How does a, an organization, a government that employs thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, trust the, those people? How does how does it effectively do that? Is it just once you're in, you're in? Yeah, I mean that's probably the biggest problem that we you know that we have in the whole trust revolution here in the 21st century in this extremely computer driven age is uh, uh, is the people. And you know we talked about Snowden. Uh, we can also talk about uh, Chelsea Manning, um, who was a, another story of a person working on the inside that um, uh, had. <laughs> way too much uh, access into data that uh, that she never earned by her position that uh, quite frankly violated that trust uh, smuggled out uh, gosh tens of thousands of sensitive state department um, uh, cables and brought them out I think the um, the problem that uh, these two kind of marquee um, situations Manning and Snowden uh, brought up uh, to the Intel community is that um, we created a system that's really hard on the outside, but squishy in the middle. Um, so uh, we weren't really doing enough, um, to be honest with you, counterintelligence uh, work um, based on exhibited behavior on the net, um, that we weren't doing enough auditing uh, to make sure that people were looking at stuff that was reasonable for, for their position. Um, we didn't have uh, the firm need-to-know system that we have now to make sure that um, some young army analyst in Iraq um, isn't accessing State Department cables involving uh, British, Dutch, Icelandic uh, banking disputes, um, which was the first cable that... Uh, Wikipedia released uh, based on uh, data that uh, Chelsea Manning gave to him. Um, but it all still revolves around people. And uh, I mean, the, the, the technical term is uh, human-enabled cyber operations. And uh, on the offensive side, that means uh, getting a human to do something, um, you know, inside a computer network that you could never do from the outside. And, and it's a big problem, and we, we don't uh, begin to have a uh, an answer to it. If you want to see it in action, I can always highly recommend Mr. Robot. I think that's still streaming <laughs> out there. That's a, That whole series is, is a great expose of uh, human-enabled cyber operations. Fascinating. I, I have yet to see it, but I, I'll add that to the top of my list now. Recommended by Major General Jim Poss <laughs> on top of my list. Absolutely. I, I love it. And so when we, uh, when we look at this, then... It, it sounds like there's like you need to be verified to get into the inner circle and you're saying that then there's these uh, of trust, but then there needs to be mechanisms that the, that protocol that re-ups that trust and checks and audits to see is this person really trustworthy kind of so is that trust if you're go if you're constantly checking on on those people, is there any level of trust or is the trust the verification? I can't. I can't imagine that there's any kind of trust that doesn't involve some level of verification. I mean, I I, I trust my dog uh, Scout, but um, I'm not gonna not take him out on a walk without a leash. <laughs> um, so it is similar in there too. But um, yeah, no, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that um, you, you got to follow up on that initial trust that you're giving people. Uh, to make sure that their behavior is consistent with what you're trusting them to do. Makes sense. And so it's like uh, considering the stakes and the context along with the trust. Right. So when we look at the uh, trust, not just of people, but of agencies, not just internationally, uh, and curious how, uh, how much you're able to talk on this, but 9-11, uh, if I remember correctly, one of the... Uh, the reports uh, on 9-11 said that uh, there was a lot of information we knew but pe people and really agencies weren't talking to each other. And some of that's been ascribed to that the agencies didn't trust each other with this information, but also didn't have the means to connect the dots. Uh, is the, Do you feel like, and so I know that part of that was creating the uh, this kind of master agency over the intelligence community to help bring those pieces together. Is that like the effective, is that the way you create trust, kind of creating a parent? 
to all of the different organizations? Like, do you, from your perspective, is that effective? Uh, Director of National Intelligence uh, has been a very effective organization. And, and the reason that you need um, DNI is what we call it. Um, is because you have to have something that you can, uh, some person or some organization that the intelligence agencies can go to to referee disputes, um, you know, set common uh, formats, common procedures. Because failing that, you know, back in the old days, uh, if the FBI didn't agree with uh, something the CIA said, then uh, they'd have to, Department of Justice would have to duke it out with CIA in the National Security Council. And that's obviously, uh, you know, not a place that you want to go to talk about routinely sharing, you know, counterintelligence reports between the two organizations. So DNI was a great idea. Um, yeah, so 9-11, um, I, trust me, I, I got a lot of personal involvement in that. I was the uh, third guy off the first plane to land in Saudi Arabia to uh, take revenge for what happened in 9-11. I was the uh, uh, Coalition Air Force's uh, chief of intelligence for that. But um, yeah, so the story about 9-11 really um, wasn't about not trusting each other uh, to share information. It, uh, a lot of it had to do with roles and missions and culture. Um, you know, I got a lot of friends in the FBI, but um, the FBI or, or Department of Justice, they are cops. Um, I'm obviously, you know, 30 years in the intelligence community. I'm, I'm an intel guy, and uh, we approach things completely differently. Um, I'm not really, I'm not allowed to work domestically, uh, you know, against U.S. citizens. Uh, I've got uh, restrictions on, you know, what I can and can't do here in the United States if I was still part of the intel community. Uh, I, I, you know, because I work with foreigners, because I work with intelligence uh, agencies, I don't have this massive uh, standard of proof that the FBI has to do because they're always constantly thinking about um, what they could take to court. Um, the FBI doesn't work uh, overseas. They, um, their counterintelligence people are great, um, but they're not always hooked up intimately with what the CIA, NSA, defense intelligence agency is necessarily doing overseas. And we just had a, a situation that, um, you know, hindsight being 2020 looks pretty crystal clear that we had uh, radicalized um, um, folks largely from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but from other places as well. Uh, and, you know, trying to learn how to fly aircraft and that should have set off alarm bells, but it didn't. Uh, if you read the 9/11 uh, Commission, and uh, and I do recommend at least reading the the academic uh, the executive summary if you're into trust, it, it does say that the biggest failure in 9/11 wasn't necessarily a failure of trust or a failure to um, exchange information. It was a it was really a failure of imagination, and, and I think that's an accurate description. I I um, you know we were monitoring everything beforehand. I was looking at it um, primarily as a threat to uh, deployed U.S. Air Force uh, assets. And um, when we saw that, I, you know, we we uh, raised our threat con uh, way up thinking that the attack was going to happen. We just none of us could have thought they're going to uh, hijack airliners and fly them into buildings. I mean, I, and I'm not sure we ever would have until it, it happened to be the black swan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's it's it's incredible, especially with your your personal experience with it what was that like you know showing up because saudi arabia is like right now is a, is a strong ally of the united states you know maybe a little bit of uh stuff going on with the biden administration but you know a long-standing ally of the united states what then like what what's that like of going from that to you know kind of enemy number one as you say as you're rolling in and then uh and then now com coming to a strong ally uh purchasing billions of dollars of weapons from us. Well, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, almost since its inception, has been a strong ally of the United States, and it still is. And uh, let's not forget that uh, although there were Saudi citizens involved in 9-11, they were enemies of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia just as much as they were ours. Al-Qaeda um, has exacted a terrible toll on the Saudis. And, um, you know, just like, uh, you know, I'm not sure we want to, you know, claim the Oath Keepers uh, these days. Um, you know, in the United States, the Saudis have always disavowed this type of radical Islam and then particularly Al-Qaeda itself, um, you know, which has been, 
in some ways a bigger enemy to our Saudi allies than it has been to us. I see. And so that's that's where the United States joined with the country of Saudi Arabia, uh, as you say, the kingdom, to respond to these radicalized individuals within the kingdom. And so that's uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious when we when we look at these uh, the the technol uh, the the technology aspects to trust, we go from the the people and technology then is kind of put forth as the the next layer of that. Like the, you can really trust the technology. People make mistakes. People can be corrupted, but technology you can trust. Uh, what is your experience with? technology being uh, in, in your realm, in, in the work you've done, and uh, basing trust on that technology? You know, the level of technology that we're, um, that we're dealing with now um, really uh, offers tremendous challenges um, to our ability to, uh, to harness it and to make sure it's doing what we really want, both from a technical aspect and uh, to be honest with you, uh, nowadays from a value aspect, um, and it's particularly difficult for us in, in common law uh, countries because um, we're so restricted by, by precedent to decide what we're going to do in the future. And, uh, you know, in a common law country like the United States or Australia or the United Kingdom, uh, it's presumed to be legal if there's not a law making it illegal. Uh, well, you can trust, contrast that with a civil code country, you know, like uh, you know, the Napoleonic, so France, where if there isn't a law permitting it, it's considered to be Ill illegal. And uh, civil code folks are much more comfortable with just writing regulations without regarding to precedent. The problem is we don't have a lot of precedent with this type of, uh, of technology and the trust levels it puts out. Um, I had this discussion with a buddy of mine in NSA well, probably about 15 years ago, and we kind of got together and we were looking at the problems caused as, um, you know, as the World Wide Web was becoming worldwide. And we both just kind of shook our heads because, uh, you know, really most of the technology that empowers the web um, goes back to the founding principles from the DARPA guys, which was to create something that was virtually unkillable, um, which, which the World Wide Web is. Um, not to create something that with a tr with a high degree of trust, and um, really all of the trust that uh, has been added to what we call the World Wide Web is is kind of been strapped on. It's not innate to us, but of course um, that in and of itself is a, is a value based decision. I mean, there there could be a way that we could create a much more trustworthy, uh, much more secure World Wide Web if we all got together and agreed to it. Uh, but it would also make it very, very easy for an autocratic government to uh, watch every move of its citizens. You know, right now, um, you know, with the security issues in the web that are big enough to drive a Mack truck through, um, you know, people can always get around it. Um, but um, if we were to make it more secure, would that be the right thing to do? So, um, uh, you know, it's tough to encourage technical trust in a system that was never designed um, to make that part of its core operating principles. I see. And that's really goes to uh, the point of building trust in from the very beginning. And uh, I'm, I'm curious when you talk about the autocratic governments and centralizing that trust, which creates the security, we only have to look probably towards China, right? The great, the great firewall of China is known as being able to keep a lot of bad things out and extremely effective at keeping uh, control over the, the internet. Uh, but also we have the potential human rights violations and the privacy violations that come with it. And so do you imagine an internet like that? Do you, is there a balance to that? Or is it a kind of, you either have the free for all that it more or less is now uh, or a tightened down, supposedly secure, trustworthy but a centralized power in place yeah i i think the you know the way that we all ought to look at um, the, the cyber environment that we are now is kind of like how we look at the physical environment um uh, you know there's a there's a huge difference in the security and level of trust it takes to walk around a you know a national park yellowstone national park uh compared to walking on another federal installation fort knox uh you know one you're just not going to waltz into two you know they, they kind of like you waltzing into 
and uh, I think uh, the key uh, in um, internet security is you're never going to be able to make the whole thing secure, but you should make certain parts of it, you know, very, very secure and very, very trustworthy. And, and the banks are a good example of that. Um, you know, their their internal uh, workings are, are highly trusted amongst themselves. Um, they've got a lot of experience in uh, keeping them pretty secure. Um, and, uh, you know, something kind of to emulate as far as uh, security goes, uh, as opposed to, you know, pick your social media um, platform, which is much more wide open. You know, it's got a lot more, a lot less lack of trust in it and security. And so I wonder if that's kind of like, as you mentioned earlier, the the tough outer shell, but the soft, gooey inner shell. Uh, look at, for example, uh, cell, cell phone carriers, right? They have an inner, uh, their inner web so that they can communicate to each other and uh, pass text message and information back and forth. And yet there's a, uh, a large amount of uh, hackers who've attacked those and once they're in they can see people's text messages i mean this is some of the concern with two-factor authentication uh and so maybe that's solved through the auditing right seeing who's looking at what and why uh similar to how uh you, you said we've approached uh the intelligence community and uh the defense on the defense side is it is not just having the strict tough outer shell but ensuring that what's happening on the inside is still being monitored and verified not just trusting that once you're in you're good to go yeah, and and that that was our big lesson from uh, you know Snowden and and Manning uh, was you know trust but verify and audit I think is is the way I do it. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to my, my analogy between you know how the feds handle you in Yellowstone Park and how the feds handle you at, at Fort Knox. Uh, you know, depending on on what the the purpose that you're wanting to do in the web, and uh, it, you know how you should be treated. I, I certainly wouldn't advocate, um, you know, the Great Firewall of China for everybody. I wouldn't advocate it for China, you know, let alone the rest of the world. <laughs> um, but it does impact. And, um, you know, when did we start? Early 90s up until oh, probably, uh, God, when was Buckshot Yankee? 2008. Um, we really thought the, the Alamo approach to cybersecurity, you know, hard on the outside, physically segregated um, networks was going to protect us and then um, buckshot yankee happened which was in 2008 tell me about that yeah 2008 so it was a uh, foreign intelligence agency that's um, never been admitted to you can use your imagination uh, was using uh, usb uh, thumb drives to exfiltrate uh, data and basically it had an agent called uh, Agent BTZ, Agent BTZ, uh, which was a reconnaissance program. So um, when you put in a thumb drive into any computer, um, again going back to the fact that you know trust wasn't built into a lot of the early systems, um, the uh, USB asks what the device is, and the device responds. And uh, you know a trusted USB thumb drive is just going to tell you I'm a USB thumb drive and I've got such a capacity, you know, and my file formatting system is such and such. Um, one infected with the agent BTZ would tell you all that information. And then also, and oh, by the way, take this, uh, this worm that's going to go through, uh, look at your uh, web structure, open a back door, and then communicate with a central location. So wow. that immediately uh, told us that, um, you know, the, the Alamo approach to where we would physically segregated systems, you know, wasn't going to work if um, you had um, um, unsecure portals to the outside world. Uh, let's, let's not forget um, Chelsea Manning uh, smuggled out uh, her tens of thousands of uh, State Department cables on a uh, Lady Gaga uh, CD read a rewritable CD. Uh, we had a rewritable CD attached to a, a Cypernet computer, uh, which is bad. So again, it goes back into, <laughs> yeah. you can't tell how these people are going to exfiltrate stuff. You know, we got cases of USBs or, you know, rewritable CDs, uh, both done, well, actually one done by robots, uh, the agent BTZ, and then one done by humans. It kind of goes back to, you have to have layered uh, trust. There's not you can't distrust that, uh, you know, I'm completely segregated from everybody. So anything that happens here, uh, you know, is trustworthy. 
yeah, build, building in those layers, auditing, and uh, really not having an assumption of trust it allows you to be able to truly trust. It sounds like not not having this feeling of safe big safety because you are air gapped. You're not connected to the internet, so therefore anything that happens there must be fine. Yeah, exactly. We we now know air gaps does not equivalent is not equal to um, safety in any or security in any way, shape, or form. Hmm. Well, as as a 30 year U.S. Air Force veteran, I'm curious just to get your thoughts on some recent events that have happened. Uh, you know, we're filming and uh, filming at the beginning of 2021, and we just recently had a Boeing 777. Uh, spread engine debris all across uh, a town right outside of Denver. Uh, this, you know, to many people get on an airplane, it's supposed to be the safest form of transportation. It's, you know, you have airplanes flying over your head every day and people trust that. What what does this show us, especially considering that now that we're looking back uh, just a couple days before there was a, a Boeing 747 had the same engine, had the same failure in the Netherlands. Same thing happened in 2018 with the same engine. Like, is there is there this false sense of security and safety in the aviation industry, or like, should people feel as comfortable as they do getting on planes? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I uh, you know saw the video just like everybody did um, out there, and it's interesting my reaction versus my uh, my wife's reaction, and you know she was horrified, you know, engine on fire, you know, coming apart. And I kind of looked at it and said, well, you know, although that wasn't uncon- uncontained uh, engine malfunction, it, really the shroud kept all of the, the really bad engine parts uh, from going out just as it was designed to do. Um, it, bad that it dropped a lot of parts on people, but uh, engine didn't fall off, uh, uh, maintained controllability, uh, the software compensated for it. Um, Pilots, uh, that, that is the one thing an airline pilot uh, does is can instantly transition to uh, engine loss. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing, uh, you know, to watch them in simulators, how quickly, you know, they recover, uh, you know, from that. And it was, I think it was, a, to me, it was actually a positive thing of uh, uh, man and machine teaming to, to bring that aircraft down. Uh, what I'll be interested to see if, if all the reports are true of, uh, of common flaws in that particular type of engine, um, that's going to go back to, um, uh, you know, what the various civil aviation regulators were doing at the time. Um, uh, generally, uh, if a fault is found in, uh, you know, let's say uh, Holland, in this case, they would have gone to Eurocontrol. Eurocontrol would have investigated it, immediately got to ICAO. It would have gotten to, you know, the FAA, British Civil Aviation, and they would have uh, generally come out, gone out with an emergency inspection order, which I don't know if that happened, uh, where you have to go out and bore scope all these engines. Uh, it, it looks like it threw a, um, a turbine blade in the first stage compressor, um, but um, but going out to do that. But uh, there's a there's a well set out. Um, methodology for doing that uh, it's always a human judgment call on um you know how quickly these guys have to do it when they they do it because uh, you know you can't down entire airlines uh you know looking at someone's uh you know but poor judgment call on whether something's a risk nor can you allow a, a genuine risk to go out and put the lives of passengers at, um, in danger well that's super fascinating to to hear that, uh, as you describe your reaction versus your wife's reaction, it sounds like the maybe that more information that you have and the familiarity you have with the system saying, well, this is what it's supposed to do. This is actually a, the best case scenario or a better case scenario than what could go wrong. Well, yeah, and, and I got that from uh, working with Assure, uh, the FAA's uh, Drone Research Center of Excellence, when we first uh, did um, uh drone jet engine ingest it was a uh, fascinating dealing with the engine companies uh you know because they, they kind of plan to throw a blade and the engine uh nacelles and coverings are designed to keep that contained and they did and then it was also fascinating dealing with the airlines uh you know because they you know obviously they don't want to lose an engine but they weren't overly concerned with losing one because that's something that they practice 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 and the flight routes are designed that you know virtually 
anywhere in the flight route that they can recover that aircraft safely on one engine. So, you know, the attitude to getting a drone ingested, which uh, our research shows would be a bad thing, uh, was, okay, well, you know, we kind of plan for bad things to happen to jet engines and, you know, we got contingency plans to get back on one engine. Absolutely. And that's what we saw in the 2001 Air Transit Flight 236, uh, where similarly all engine power was lost right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and then they ran out of fuel on top of that uh, and so luckily the the pilot in, on board was also a professional glider pilot I don't know what would happen if if not maybe it would have been fine uh, but when we look at autonomous technology and autopilots taking control of uh, aircraft do you see a future where we can trust and say uh, to not have any pilots on board, and we say we're going to trust the AI to simply figure it out and to be able to respond as effectively as this glider pilot did, essentially with hundreds of people on board on his glider. Yeah, uh, well, I'm pro drone and I'm pro autonomy, yes. and uh, <laughs> you know I really believe in it. But my standard answer to that is um, uh, we'll have fully autonomous uh, aircraft the second that Air Force One goes fully autonomous. Uh, you know, that's kind of your your platinum standard for deciding whether you're going to do it or not. Uh, but the, the military is um, is uh, is working its way you know towards full autonomy pretty quickly. Um, you know, in the um, air transport uh, realm, uh, you know, really a, a lot of the advanced Boeing and Airbus aircraft are already autonomous. I mean, uh, pilots are, are more of a system monitor for most of the flight. You now they're, they're capable of fully taking over, but most of the big problems with autonomy have been broken, um, have been uh, solved. Uh, I had a fascinating discussion with a uh, air cargo carrier who is, uh, um, determined to have an optionally piloted um, single crew cargo aircraft, um, you know, sometime around 2030 or so. Uh, fascinating why they want to go single crew and they want to go optional. Uh, First, they, tell, what, is, what do you mean by single crew? Uh, single crew. So uh, let's pick on a cargo 747 flying from uh, Memphis to uh, Narita in uh, Tokyo. Uh, to pilot and co-pilot, um, and then they'll have an augmented crew. So generally, there's there's four to five uh, air crew on board the aircraft in order to to do a long haul uh, mission like that. So what uh, FedEx is wanting to get to is a single crew, so just one pilot, and probably just one air crew on the aircraft. So um, as the aircraft takes off out of Memphis, let's say, uh, pilot's going to be awake monitoring the systems. Um, might not be awake for a lot of the underway transportation, uh, but he is going to be awake uh, when it lands, and he's definitely going to be awake when it taxis because, uh, believe it or not, the big problem in uh, large cargo aircraft autonomy is is not flight. It's, uh, it's ground taxi. Why? Um, what, what happens during ground taxi? I, you know, we've sort of uh, – the air is, uh, is, is a fairly easy place to automate. Uh, you know, I'd kind of argue that with modern um, – uh, ADSB out and ADSB in, you know, ADSB being a, a, a GPS um, transponder that uh, tells everybody exactly where you are and they can talk to each other. And uh, uh, TCAS, which uh, doesn't allow aircraft to run into each other, um, that it's it's 95% of what you need to do in the air to automate uh, is already there. Uh, ground is different, just like we're finding with autonomous uh, ground vehicles. It's a lot harder to automate the ground, and nobody as yet has uh, invested in the infrastructure at large airports to enable um, autonomous ground taxi. It's not that hard. We just haven't done it. I mean, we haven't, uh, you know, we got all those great signs that you see on the various taxiways that, you know, mean various things and big, you know, gate numbers and all that, but there's no electronic um, equivalent to that to let a a, a drone know that this is, you know, taxi we 112 and I'm so many feet from that. Um, so it's kind of interesting. And, and, and really, um, certainly for the air cargo stuff, um, you know, they're after every second they can get and they waste a lot of money on the ground, even with humans aggressively doing it. So 
so that's uh, the cargo side. Uh, the air combat side, uh, that's going to be a while. Uh, if you want to Google uh, uh, something interesting, uh, Google uh, Alpha Dogfight Trials. that was done by Air Force Research Lab back in August of last year. And the idea behind Alpha Dogfight Trials was to get a bunch of companies that would come up with AI routines to control a uh, simulated F-16 uh, Viper. And the goal was to um, be able to hold your nose onto another aircraft for X amount of seconds to simulate a air-to-air gun kill. And uh, initially, I think there were six participants. They all fought each other uh, until it was like uh, there could only be one and there was one left. And they actually um, had that one um, AI fight an actual F-16 pilot, uh, a weapons school grad, you know, Top Gun guy. And... uh, you could watch the videos yourself. It was not a good day for the humans. Now, granted, it was air-to-air gunnery, which is probably the easiest uh, thing to uh, to automate, but uh, it, it showed what an autonomous dogfighting system could do. What, what what's the alternative? What are what would you say is the hardest hardest thing to automate? Uh, the hardest things to automate are you know anything involving battle management. Um, you know what. Uh, uh, so let's do a, a normal meeting engagement between a, a four ship of F-15s and a you know four ship of Sahoy SU-27s. Um, so you're you're coming in and you know that uh, you, you got to sort targets between the wingmen and uh, you've got uh, your missiles have this amount of kinematic energy that are going to give it an engagement envelope from here and uh, you also know that you got to you know, keep this much fuel going and and all that. But then there's all kinds of variables that could happen between there that it's, um, that this it, is all in the pilot's head. Yeah. It's all in the pilot's head. Uh, or the, and they're the, talking the, back in this forth. case, the flight lead and they're, well, if they're okay. in the U S air force, they better not be talking back and forth too much. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, talking on the radio is not cool to fighter guys. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that they're all uh, making these independent calculations, uh, on their own. And you're, not just worrying about whether the SU-27s are going to gun you to death. They've got, um, you know, these uh, missiles that uh, when you get in short range, they can virtually look and shoot you. They've got long-range radar missiles, tremendous amount of complex uh, stuff. And the interesting part, uh, when, you, when you do have uh, fighter pilots, you know, fight each other, you know, either for real in combat or over red flag, uh, the, the thing that kills an awful lot of people is just the unpredictability of what the other side's going to do. Do you think AI could help predict that? I think uh, AI assistance is, is going to be a tremendous thing. And uh, we, we've really already got that in uh, a lot of our advanced uh, fifth generation fighters. I mean, everybody who's in Oz over the F-22 and the F-35 because they're stealth fighters and they've got, you know, supersonic super crews and all that stuff. But Eh, it's not really the revolutionary part. The revolutionary part is the software that, that runs the flight system and, and how it uh, gives AI augmentation to the pilot, makes uh, a lot of uh, routine decisions that uh, a human would have had to have made in and of it uh, on its own back in the old days with the F-15, for example. So it's suggesting these things to the human. It's not it's not making the aircraft do anything. Yeah. So let's compare uh, Vietnam War with the, the F-4 Phantom, which it used to have a human in the back uh, ground, uh, a, a weapon system operator that would be looking at that raw radar scope to decide whether he had a MIG ahead of him. And, you know, got these fuzzy phosphorescent dots and they would turn this way or that way, depending on the Doppler shift, which meant they were either going faster or slower than you. Fast forward to the late 70s, early 80s with the F-15, where a single pilot and a computer was making all those basic decisions that, okay, I've got a, a lump of metal out here. Uh, it's going so fast. It's at such and such an altitude. The Doppler shift is here. So it's going so many knots faster than me. And it would give the pilot uh, you know, a presentation. The track is at this lat long, this altitude, uh, it's going this fast, um, it's moving X amount um, relative to your position. And then you compare that with what the F-22, F-35 is doing. It's doing all that stuff, but then it's taking in all of the other sensors and, uh, you know, looking at the radar of the aircraft, looking at the uh, uh, infrared signature of the aircraft, looking at the actual 
radar signature, you know, not just for a lump of metal, but lump of metal to see if it's got, you know, twin tails poking up, in which cases, you know, it could be an SU-27. And then fusing that all together and making a pretty darn call that that lump of metal is a SU-27 flanker. And uh, it then will augment, uh, once it decides what it is, um, it'll give you all kinds of displays about, uh, you know, what the SU-27 can and can't do when it's at that speed and, you know, when you're, whether you are or aren't in the weapons envelope given, you know, various loadouts of missiles. Absolutely. So many sensors all feeding in that you, each right. one has to be completely accurate. You have to trust each of those because then right. it goes to the computer, the computer's processing that and giving you vital data that's going to keep you alive. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And it all has to be trusted within the, the avionics bus on the aircraft, it has to move very quickly, uh, has to have a lot of contact with the intelligence community to make sure the signatures that they see match up with, uh, well, A, what the adversary says, but even more importantly, um, what your allies do. You know, last thing you need to know do is um, uh, for a while the the – a German Luftwaffe flew MiG-29 Fulcrums. Um, it would be nice to know which one is the Luftwaffe Fulcrum and, you know, which one is the, you know, Russian Fulcrum hmm. MiG-29. Yeah, would, would not want to shoot down an ally. And so that's just managed through the signatures and knowing, you know, who's flying what? Because you're obviously not broadcasting, hey, I'm the United States, here I am. You know, don't shoot um, the allies. Well, yes and no. You are. Oh, yeah. I mean, that goes into identify friend or foe systems, uh, you know, which we've had, you know, since World War II. Brits invented it. Um, but it's a, uh, a signal that when, a, um, when you query it back in the old days, it would send back a, a coded signal uh, that only your friends would have. And, you know, it would get this coded signal. You'd look that up and, oh, my gosh, it's a RAF aircraft. Don't, don't shoot it. Um, today with, uh, with, uh, modern mode five, um, uh, which is an encrypted, um, NATO standard mode five, it, uh, it takes the best of ADSB. So, um, you know, all that stuff we were talking about, given a very precise location in space, and, and then it puts an encrypted signal back that lets you know that, um, this dot, which is a, a GPS drive dot, because I'm broadcasting it from my Mark five, um, uh, transponder is in fact a um, you know French Air Force um, you know, mirage and not a uh, kind of think who bad guys that fly mirages back in the old days the Iraqis used to fly mirages um, out there which is which is fascinating um, because uh, it really IFF reliable I trusted IFF really does change the way you manage an air battle oh absolutely but you have to know that there's no way that the bad guys are spoofing that. Is, right. And has it, I mean, do is that something known openly if mode five has been spoofed? Well, you can read back through history and there's quite a bit of, um, you know, from the forties until now of both sides spoofing each other. Uh, mode five is designed to make that much, 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 much more difficult. I, I never say never when a computer and a security involved, but it, it does make it a lot, uh, a lot harder to do. And the problem, you know, you run into, uh, you know, particularly for NATO air forces is, um, you know, potentially your biggest threat is your own side. Um, you Why know. is that? Well, um, you know, think about the people that we've actively fought, the Serbs. Um, it wasn't a NATO operation, but a lot of our NATO partners flew with us in Southern Watch and all that stuff um, over Iraq. Those weren't the greatest air defenses in the world. Uh, NATO air defenses are, and they will work just as effectively against a misidentified blue aircraft as they will against a uh, properly identified uh, adversary aircraft. And by air defenses, do you mean ground-to-air missiles? Uh, both of them. Uh, well, you look at issues that we've had. Um, gosh, uh, United States Air Force shot down a, a U.S. Army Blackhawk uh, over over Iraq in the uh, mid '90s. Um, mm. Gosh, I think we had two Blue Air kills during Operation um, Iraqi Freedom uh, from surface-to-air missiles out there. We had a um, uh, U.S. Air Force Wild Weasel uh, aircraft, which has got missiles that can lock into radars and destroy them that um, 
in the words of the pilot, he took a protective reaction shot against a, a patriot that had locked onto him and killed the patriot before it could kill him. All, all due to, to mess ups with um, uh, identification. Goodness. And so, I mean, any level of doubt, obviously, when you have that split second decision right. is so critical. When, when we look at this uh, the topic of bringing in autonomy and computers into the aircraft, I can't help but think of the Boeing 737 MAX example, right. where the pilots are flying and there's this new feature that maybe they didn't get trained on or know about that where the computer will take control of the aircraft and they try to overcorrect it. And in two separate instances, they killed 346 people uh, just in the last couple of years. How do like what 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 went wrong there? And how is it is it because, you know, obviously we've talked about how good computers and autonomy are and how it can promote even more trust. But should the computer ever take control from the pilot, from the human? Okay, so 737 Max is an interesting um, study in, uh, you know, in autonomy. Um, we've dealt with uh, what we call relaxed static stability um, since the late relaxed 80s. Relaxed static stability. stability. So F-16 okay. has got a fly-by-wire system. If you were to cut all electrical power from the F-16, it is not to de- designed to fly in any way, shape, or form. Um, unless you've got a computer that are giving it, you know, thousands of micro corrections per second to make sure that aircraft is flying. Uh, so the good news so is, so if you EMP it, it's done. Well, just about anything's done if you get EMP'd, except for the F four Phantom. But uh, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> or a glider. Uh, yeah, or, or a glider. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's not really designed to fly on its own without the computer. And uh, seven thirty seven Max uh, ended up that way. Um, through design changes. Uh, 737's an old design. Um, they knew that they needed to put these you know, fantastic new engines on there, but putting the new engines on there um, messed with the center of gravity of the aircraft such that, uh, again, humans really couldn't compensate for that, and you really needed the machine compensating for the center of gravity, which, which means uh, if the machine wasn't operating correctly, the nose was going to drop. And, uh, you know, humans really wouldn't have the reactions to be able to do that. Uh, the problem was there was a glitch in the software and there were certain flight regimes where you would get where the uh, computer was convinced that um, the uh, center of gravity on the aircraft was causing the nose to thought drop vice, you know, the aircraft and uh, I mean, nose to rise, not drop. Uh, and the air, then the autopilot would engage. And in this case, there, there really wasn't good procedures to disengage uh, the autopilot and recover it, and it should have never happened. And you know, the software was designed properly to begin with, but unfortunately, it did, and we lost hundreds of people. And is that the is that not to be harsh and cold? But is that the cost of building quote unquote safer aircraft and being able to trust the aircraft more? Is that you occasionally have these? glitches with the computers that are supposed to make them safe? Um, absolutely not. I mean, or it's just uh, unacceptable. We, it's unacceptable. We, we've got procedures. Um, uh, you know, there'll be a big investigation over this. I think it'll probably find that Boeing, you know, should have done more to make sure that that happened. The FAA should have been more aggressive in um, uh, inspecting what Boeing was doing. And um, there should have been ways to, that we would have known that that happened. And, uh, and uh, it would have never, ever, ever put that technology on a, a passenger carrying aircraft if there was any risk. I mean, a lot, a lot of people don't know it, but um, airline manufacturers are, are so risk adverse that, you know, all these fantastic aircraft you're reading about have actually got uh, 1990s vintage computer chips in them because um, we know everything about those chips and uh, we know exactly how they're going to react on every given thing. And the fact that you know, maybe they're, you know, five, ten times slower than what we have now. We don't know those new chips. We know those ones, and we're going to use them. And just keep trusting what's worked. Uh, keep trusting uh, something that we know every every parameter around, how they how they perform under uh, heat, under cold, under pressure. Um, so how do you introduce new technology? Very carefully, which... <laughs> <laughs> Which is what you and I deal with all the time uh, in getting the FAA yes. to, uh, you know, accept uh, unmanned aircraft and more autonomous aircraft. 
Absolutely. Into this, the, the aviation space, which is so entrenched in doing things the same way, because that's what's do trusted. It, that's doing things the safe, the safe way. I mean, that is, um, yep. that is, yeah, safety culture is, is vital to airmen, you know, both civil mm-hmm. and military. I mean, I, I contrast it with, uh, you know, the Air Force my father was in and what I what I grew up in. Um, before Tell we, me, what's the difference? Well, it's before we really adopted the safety culture in the Air Force. And I only talked to the Air Force, um, you know, the U.S. Air Force, other Air Forces came around. Uh, you know, when I grew up, we always, uh, you know, looked up to fighter pilots because, you know, they were cool guys and they still are cool guys. Uh, but fighter pilots in the Air Force, uh, you know, that my dad was in, uh, had a one out of four chance of dying in peacetime. And in we peacetime? Did, yeah, in peacetime. Uh, Why? Uh, various accidents, you know, planes crash. Um, yeah. It's like know. the cowboys, right? It was like the cowboys of the sky. Yeah, cowboys of the sky. And, uh, you know, aviation's dangerous. So, you know, don't worry about it. Um, uh, fascinating thing about that too my dad was a maintenance guy um and and i am still under psychological stress because um i have a screwdriver that is missing from my shadow box you know i've been raised to you got a tool drawer you uh cut out the outline of every tool you put that in foam so that way you know that you've lost that foam and that was beat into my dad in the uh, in the early 70s as a way to reduce foreign object damage uh, to account for tools uh, prior to that, in the 60s, uh, the attitude was, well, you know, jet engines suck things up and we'll just buy no more jet engines. And, uh, you know, we, so we fought out engines all the time. The Air Force, uh, after Vietnam, adopted a safety culture wholeheartedly. And uh, it was no longer cool to, you know, th- this guy crashed. Oh, man, sorry for Bob. Uh, you have a Class A accident in the Air Force from the late uh, 70s on. At a minimum, you're going to be explaining that in excruciating detail to your four-star major command commander, usually the chief of staff of the Air Force, which, uh, trust wow. me, no one wants to do. Uh, you have a Class A accident, holy cow, the whole earth descends on you. Uh, you immediately have to give uh, you know blood samples to the flight doc to see what you were doing. Uh, they uh, embargo any piece of equipment that touched that aircraft. Uh, trained experts, you know, fly in and they find the root cause of that aircraft. And no longer is the attitude that flying is dangerous. Get over it. Uh, it's something went wrong with that aircraft and we're going to find it. Um, so we're going to find out the physical cause or we're going to find out the training cause or we're going to find out the cultural cause. And we're just going to beat that into our aviators head until they never, ever do it again. And that is really, um, you know, cut down not just our peacetime loss rate, but I'm going to argue it's carried over into our combat loss rate too, and really, and really put that down, and really knock that down to compare to what we saw in Vietnam. You you really can't compare Desert Storm on combat losses with Vietnam and before. It's like night and day, and a lot of that's got to do with that safety culture. Not, not that we want to do things the same way every time, because we do realize that we got to take risk, you know, particularly in the military, is we want to do things a safe way every time. That's that's so brilliant. It's like when you accept that uh, that flying is dangerous, and you know we lose people, and that's just the way it's been. You know, one in four, uh, we lose them, and that's uh, just the way it is. To say no, it doesn't have to be that way, and we're going to put measures in place. And we're going to say that it's it's safe. We're going to say it's safe. We're going to do everything and put all these resources behind to truly make it safe and create transparency and ensure that there is accountability for when things go wrong and not just accept flying is dangerous. You know, those people who sign up know, know it's dangerous. Well, just right. Completely saying, just simply saying it's safe and we're going to put resources behind it. And we're going to put resources, make sure it is. And in uh, dealing with the FAA, bringing new technology in. Um, the FAA is, is definitely one of those organizations that is not impressed by your new technology. They're impressed <laughs> by, um, by your safety case. Okay. So, you know, a good example of that is a recent, um, waiver that the FAA granted to American robotics to fly, uh, beyond visual line of sight, which is, you know, kind of the holy grail of drones nowadays is being able to go past that, um, prohibition of flying beyond the visual line of sight of your pilot. American robotics got it. And they did it in a way I I never would have imagined, but they've got uh, acoustic sensors 
that are um, uh, set up to pick up sounds of, of their aircraft and other aircraft all along the way. And uh, they, American Robotics just did, I'm sure, a safety case that was, you know, a thousand pages thick or something, you know, explaining everything about the sensors and how far they were and all that. And the FAA bought it. Um, but I'll guarantee you that their safety case um, reached back to something that was accepted in manned aviation, you know, which is um, uh, detection of, uh, of other aircraft by um, non-visual means in this case. Most of the time when we say that, we mean radar. In this case, it was acoustics. Yeah, and, and taking, it sounds like taking that small step, you know, going from the manned aviation and saying we've done things uh, that we know are safe, and so let's see if we take the person out of the cockpit and we add just a little bit different type of sensor, then we can branch off from the trust that's already been established over decades. Right, and and improve it. I mean, um, I you know, I love pilots to death, but, uh, you know, if you're flying in a Cessna 172, um, you're really not seeing and avoiding much, uh, which is the bedrock of aviation safety, that no matter what happens, that pilot would be able to look out, see and avoid collisions. And you just look at a Cessna 172, you're not going to see much above you because there's wings there. You're not going to see much over the engine cowling because the engine's there. Um, you know, humans are lucky to see 70 degree cone in front of the aircraft is maybe, I don't know, 30 degrees wide uh, compared with some of these detect and avoid technologies that we're working with drones. They're going to see 360 degrees and actually initially improve safety for drones. But I, I have no doubt that that's going to be uh, added to manned aircraft and uh, give that Cessna. Uh, pilot uh, an ability to see something other than that soda straw he's seeing out the front of that aircraft. <laughs> Game changing. Game changing. That's good. You know, Major General Jim Poss, in our final moments together, I'm I'm curious just to understand as we look out into the future and as people talk about trust, what is it that uh, how you would summarize how what people should be thinking about, and whether it's in general or in aviation or autonomy. We're in the military. What what is it that people really need to? How do we need to rethink trust? Well, well I mean, we're, we've already got. We know how to do 19th century trust. You know, we know that it's got to be built up, and that you've got to know uh, that the, about the person or the procedure that you're talking about, and it's got to be uh, repeatable and verifiable and all that. Uh, the fascinating thing about the 20th century, when we start talking about digital trust, uh, is that we've got the chance if we do it right. And I'm going to argue we didn't do it right when. <laughs> DARPA invented the World Wide Web back in the 70s um, that we can make for a much more trusted world. And I think um, that's the only way to make a, a really safe world as we go more into autonomy, that we really get our best minds in industry and in government together uh, to figure out how to make how to make this new world, which is already digital, uh, make it a trusted digital world. And there's a lot of ways to do that. And I know, uh, you know, you've had quite, we've had quite a few uh, conversations about that, but we, we've got to take it as a bedrock principle as we go forward with anything on autonomy, that uh, trusted digital autonomy has just got to be mm. a part of it. And ultimately, that's what creates the safety and have, having that truly trusted sensors and computers and algorithms and feedback and all of that is what creates that safety case. And uh, from from there all the way to, as I think back on our conversation, looking at the um, how trust is transient, as you as you said, and how it has to be earned and continue to be audited. How we've learned from uh, the foundations of the moderns military trust, building out from World War II, and even more so is in aviation, as you mentioned uh, from Desert Storm. It's it's fascinating to look back at how trust has changed over the years, whether it's within uh, the DOD and the defense side and whether it's working with spies and CIA and NSA analysts uh, to looking at how we need dispute resolutions uh, parties such as uh, director of national intelligence to oversee and coordinate all of these uh, all of these people to ensure that you have that transparency and accountability that ultimately creates that trust from there all the way into aviation. It's, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation. And uh, as I uh, as I think back on our time that we've shared, there's so much more that, uh, that could be said. I hope to all of those listening 
that uh, if you have anything that you've heard today that's uh, particularly touched you or uh, made you think about something differently, please let us know. We'd love to hear it. Shoot us a message, tweet us, comment. I know Major General Jim Poss would love to hear it. You betcha. And I'm curious for our listeners, how can they stay in touch? How can they hear your updates? What's the best way to do that? Uh, yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm enjoying posting on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I used to be a Twitter, Twitter head, uh, the politics on Twitter got a little bit too much for me. Uh, so I, I've been posting on LinkedIn and, and if you want to talk politics, please <laughs> do it some other place. I'm going to stay with the technical aspects there on LinkedIn, but, uh, and what's your name on LinkedIn? Uh, James Poss. James Poss. Okay. Easy. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for your time, Major General Jim Poss. I really, really appreciate it. For all those listening, check out uh, Major General James Poss on LinkedIn. And uh, thank you again for all this super valuable information. You betcha. And please, to everyone listening, join us next time. We'd love to have you uh, join in the discussion. Let us know what you're thinking. But until then, thank you for joining the Trust Revolution. Trust Revolution.